What's going to power our everyday commutes in the next decade and beyond? Where are cities headed towards as the number of mobility solutions and challenges proliferate? These are some of the big questions that we explore in Moving Cities, a podcast on the future of mobility presented to you by Eden Strategy Institute. Here at Eden Strategy Institute, we collaborate with the world's most successful organizations to sustain their growth through business system innovation. In Moving Cities, we'll take you along the journeys of innovators, experts, and veterans in the smart cities and urban mobility space as they have tested, led, and experimented with new mobility initiatives in their cities. How are American cities thinking about the future of mobility? Today on Moving Cities, we dive deeper into this topic with Danielle Elkins. Danielle has over a decade of experience working with local governments on infrastructure issues and transportation policy. She currently advises the city of Minneapolis, making sure that mobility technology creates positive outcomes for communities. In addition to this work, Danielle runs a consultancy to bridge the gap between government, engineering, and technology in the transportation and smart cities markets. Danielle has even co-founded a nonprofit advocacy organization that successfully increased transit funding in Atlanta. Danielle, it's really an honor to have you join us and share on Moving Cities. You've been working with a lot of different cities in the U.S. Based on this experience, would you say that most American cities are well-equipped to deal with the future of mobility? And maybe for those that aren't, what's missing from their work plans and vision? Most U.S. cities are, the way that they're structured in their departments, they're very siloed, they have planners, they have engineers, and most of the people really are not up to date on what's going on with the industry. So much is changing and it's changing so rapidly that there are very few people that really understand this and can kind of speak the language between the engineering and planning inside and the technology side and then understanding how to get that through government because government is just so incredibly complicated in the U.S., city government particularly. And so what we're lacking is the we don't have enough people that can kind of speak all of those languages and build the trust and in order to get these things to actually happen or to get funding to make them happen. Like we're still convincing lawmakers that they need to put funding into this new stuff and we're still convincing engineers that this isn't just a passing fad and we're convincing planners that there is value in bringing technology into what they're doing. Right. So as we're talking about stakeholders, what are the most important factors to consider when trying to engage all of the relevant stakeholders from both the public and private sectors? I think the the hardest part is demonstrating the value, showing the value, and especially for something that maybe doesn't even exist yet. I have seen a lot of value in just creating visuals for people to stay more informed more easily and read more about the things that they're the most interested in and kind of empowering to take that on. I'm definitely seeing that like the younger planners, when given access, are just running with it and really taking the initiative to learn it and understand it. The most challenging group, and this is, I think, for any change and for any government, is the middle. The folks that have been here for a long time that are set in their ways, that think that either this is going to go away or is not important to them, showing them that it is important and that it's not going to go away and that if you ignore it, that there are going to be problems or repercussions. It's more damaging to have something happen to you than to be proactive and decide how it happens. 
and kind of showing just every time something happens where because we didn't respond fast enough or we didn't respond, something negative happened, showing them the cause and result of what happened. So just kind of like putting things in the language that each of those groups can identify with and using visuals. And, you know, we've done a lot of workshops to get people to brainstorm. We've done seminars where we have speakers come in and explain it and show examples of what they've done in other cities. It's just a lot of fear to overcome. Now, we've actually heard from other interviewees that there's often confusion around the roles and responsibilities of different stakeholders. Is that something you've also experienced in Minneapolis? We get more tension of like, there's this like, I don't want this because I don't understand it, but also I want to control it and own it and stop it. And there's just like a natural tension between the divisions of who owns what, and that is definitely problematic. If you break it down to like an actual project and we say, you own this part of the project, you own this part of the project, they're like, oh, okay, I get that and I can do that. Breaking it down into those pieces of you own this, you own this, and you own this. But the hard part is then in the long term, who's going to be the person to know which of these groups owns what and is going to divide that work and has the authority to do that. That's the hard part. Now, there seems to be a negative perception of public transportation and using buses and, and trains and whatnot in some of the cities in the United States. Um, or maybe to put it another way, there is a positive perception um, tied to car ownership. So it can be difficult to increase public transit ridership in these cities. Um, but this is something that you actually managed to overcome and achieve in your previous role in Atlanta. How do you explain this success? It's like a combination, and it's generational also in the U.S where younger generations tend to not want to own a car and not want to drive, whereas like older generations see it as, it's like the American freedom. Like I have freedom to drive my car or park wherever I want. Um, whereas younger people are like, that is not freedom. Being stuck in a car in traffic and not being able to find parking is not freedom. That's a burden. So like Advanced Atlanta, we literally created an organization for millennials because we knew that that was the generation that was going to get on board with expanding transit and we used that to then pressure the business community and leadership that this is something that the future of the city and the city's leadership wanted. We tried to like, you know, make it cool as well. Like these were fun events and you're trying to change the perception of what it means to ride transit in the U.S. And it's different also between large cities in the U.S medium size and small cities, like rural America does not have transit and sees it very negatively because they don't have it in a way that is really helpful or quality. Whereas if you live in New York City or San Francisco, you are more likely to not own a car, be dependent on transit and see it as a really important asset for the city you live in because the traffic would be so bad if you were driving, it would be horrible. More driven by like, you know, the traffic and the negative than a positive. The only reason you would ride transit is if the traffic was so bad that you wouldn't want to drive. I will say that the difference in the culture in Minneapolis is it's always been a very active city. And I think partially there's historically a lot of people that settled in Minnesota were of Scandinavian descent and and still remaining active. And they prioritize um, the active infrastructure, so bike lanes, bike paths, and there was never as much of a negative perception around transit and biking here as in other cities in the U.S. that I've lived in. In Atlanta, it's the opposite. If you're biking or you're on a bus, it's because you must be too poor to own a car. In Minneapolis, if you're biking, you're just active and fit. 
if you're choosing to take the bus, it's because you're smart and you could do other things on the bus while you're going to work and it's just easy. So a lot of it is, it goes with the culture of the area you're in. So other cities have it a lot harder. But I mean, we still do too. We still have a significant piece of our population that drives alone to work and is a problem for us. But the difference is that we've been able to invest in bike infrastructure and bus only lanes. And we have streets in downtown that only buses can go on. And so it works better, which means people have a better experience with transit, which means they're more likely to ride it. The next issue would then be funding, which a lot of city leaders and mayors are often concerned about. How do you actually find the necessary funding to improve public transit enough so that people are drawn to use it because it meets their needs, instead of using public transit because the alternatives that they have are worse? I'm sure this is something that our listeners are very curious about. It is divided between different so different jurisdictions. So most U.S. cities, you've got the city government that has the control over the right-of-way, and then you have a transit agency that does the operations of the transit. So it's really important for us that we have a really strong relationship with our transit agency, which is Metro Transit. They have staff that are focused on shared and advanced mobility as well, and I talk to them probably weekly, if not daily, to be coordinating on pilots so that we are making infrastructure that works for them. We are giving them the bus-only lanes or the streets that are only for buses so that they then can be successful in their operations and meeting their on-time goals and having a positive experience. Like the one example is when they put in the light rail, our traffic engineers made sure that the light rail always had signal priority as it approached intersections so that it worked properly. And it's just, I mean, basic stuff, but having that important partnership is there. The challenge in Atlanta was that Atlanta received no state funding. It was only a local sales tax that funded the entire system, so it was never enough money. Places like Los Angeles, they are funded by a sales tax, but they've continued to increase their sales tax because the public said, we want more transit and we think it's important to invest in it. And when they continue to deliver on the projects, the public says, well, that's going well, I'm going to give you more money. So over the past you know, 50 years, they've continued to increase the tax to pay for that service. Whereas in Atlanta, they have trouble convincing folks to increase the money because past projects haven't been delivered as well as they should have been. For that, it's all about trust of government. And I think partially why it works in Minneapolis is that, for the most part, fundamentally, people in Minnesota trust their government because they get things done and they deliver on the promises and they deliver the service that they say they're going to with the resources they're given. A lot of the money that is generated within public works is associated with parking fees. And so how do you prioritize, and this is a fundamental conversation we're having about, we need to price the things that are not priorities. So single occupancy cars should pay more than the modes that we want to prioritize that help us meet our goals around safety and prosperity and accessibility and climate, which is we want to prioritize bicyclists and pedestrians and people that are on public transportation. It's change, which a lot of people do not like. Based on your experiences, are there then some radical policy changes that you wish to see implemented in your city? The craziest thing that most U.S. cities are thinking about right now is congestion pricing. Pricing people for going into the most congested areas of our biggest cities. Also just having more dynamic pricing of parking to incentivize better behavior. I don't know that Minneapolis has the density we, we were not a New York or L.A. or San Francisco in the way that they're thinking about this. I think I think it's really important that New York does it, and I think they're going to 
hopefully that works really well and it will set an example for a lot of other cities. For us, it's starting with taking lanes away and giving them to our bus only lane, which is one of the pilots that we're doing right now. That scene is pretty radical here. The fact that we are giving lanes to transit and that we're going to keep adding more bike lanes. I think one thing that a lot of people would like to see is just the change in, how, in terms of how we price parking, for, especially for commuters. Um, Atlanta was looking at a study around travel demand management for people and how they're commuting. And one of the biggest problems in the U.S. is the fact that we kind of incentivize all the wrong behaviors in terms of either tax credits or just the way that our, basically our building leases are done. Normally, if you are going to work at a company, they will give you free parking, which incentivizes you to commute in the wrong way. So it would be really great if we could pass policy in the U.S. to which is they call unbundling parking from building leases, where you would just pay the lease of the building and then parking would be an additional cost and it would be per employee. So an employee could decide, do I want free parking or do I want a free transit pass? And they should be able to choose. But it's very, it's a really hard thing to get accomplished. And, and partially it's because these decisions are normally driven by state policy and State governments in the U.S. are a mix of rural and urban interests, and so there's a lot of pushback from rural and suburban districts that are more dependent on parking that they wouldn't want to see changes like that happen. Right. So you mentioned earlier that the outcomes you're aiming for, such as resiliency and prosperity, do these outcomes sometimes conflict with one another? And if if it does happen, uh, how do you then resolve these trade-offs? It's a challenge. Um, I think... Some, in some ways, maybe some of the priorities end up being more important than others. I think we would prioritize safety and accessibility over efficiency. If we're going to get more people safely to their destination in a way that's accessible to more of our residents, but it takes it's maybe less efficient, we're going to go with the less efficient because our whole point is to serve our residents. If something is efficient but it's not actually serving our residents, then it's kind of missing the entire point. One of the challenges that, you know, we've got a lot of new mobility options that, you know, use technology to presumably make it more, make it easier for people to access these different modes. But for those in our community that do not have a smartphone or do not have a a bank account, which means they don't have a credit card to pay for these things, they don't get access to them. So we're trying to figure out ways to reduce those barriers and sometimes it's just partnering with local nonprofits to get people banked and getting people next to the internet and with smartphones and solving some of the other problems. But it's a challenge for every region in the U.S. I think we kind of went into it with the assumption being more the problem was going to be smartphone access than being unbanked. But the more we, we spoke with people at some of our engagement events and then started kind of running some tests with the existing programs of what existed, we found that it was more of the banking issue, and it is a uniquely U.S. issue because just to have a regular checking account in the U.S., usually there are monthly fees. The banking industry is so consolidated here that if you don't have a certain amount in your account every month or you don't have an employer you know, putting a paycheck in your account every month, they charge you sometimes 15 to $20 a month. But one thing that we're trying to do is partner with local banks that are willing to offer bank accounts that do not have those fees to local residents, helping them to build financial literacy and helping them with tax 
preparation, which is so complicated here also. And we're trying to figure out if, like, if we can get people banked and get people resources that they're already entitled to as people that are recipients of, like, government benefits, that can we just add transportation to that kind of suite of things that they're already enti- they already are entitled to it, but we make them fill out, like, another form to get it? Why can't we just make it automatic? Now, there are many different visions of the future of mobility that we've seen and heard so far. Um, some where people are using flying cars or VTOLs, others that are less tech intensive with people traveling less or shorter distances um, and less often. Where do you position yourself in this big spectrum or space of the future of mobility? And what's your vision for the future of mobility for the next 10 to 20 years? I think we're all kind of starting to see that some of the automated car technologies and connected car technologies are taking a little bit longer than we thought that we're going to. And so we're kind of trying to seize the opportunity to build all the infrastructure that supports all the other modes that we want to prioritize and doubling down on that. And then hopefully by the time that that technology is, you know, in a better place that we'll be prepared for it. I think there's a lot that still needs to happen in the U.S. in terms of wireless technology and improving our grid that would enable a lot of that technology to happen. I feel like we still have a long way to go, but I think what I'm curious about is different types of shared mobility vehicles, how we start to think about microtransit and smaller vehicles and sharing rides and just general behavioral change around how people in the U.S. get around and getting people to think about maybe I don't need to buy another SUV. Now, Danielle, you're definitely a veteran in the space with so many experiences under your belt. You're incredibly active. Um, and I'm just wondering if you could advise a decision maker with all the experiences that you have in hand, uh, someone who's about to plan his or her city's future mobility system, what would be your key recommendation for them? It's easy to kind of jump over the, the hard work and the prep work that is necessary to be ready for technology. My advice would be don't forget that you can't have automated cars without a functioning wireless system and signal system that is fully updated and roads that are maintained and properly striped and all of the really unsexy stuff that goes with uh, maintaining a transportation system. You have to start there and it can be very dangerous to just kind of jump over that stuff and and attach yourself to some shiny new thing if you haven't figured it out. And I think a lot of cities in the U.S. are learning the hard way because they don't have bike lanes. They're seeing a lot of scooter accidents and fatalities or congestion issues and things that I think there's a, a desire to just find this easy solution that will fix all of those other problems. But I don't believe that that's a thing. I don't think that automated cars are going to fix all of our transit and congestion issues because there's still humans involved. Thank you, Danielle, for sharing such rich insights and learnings with us on Moving Cities today. I think your experiences have shown the importance of being sensitive to the specific contextual needs of different cities. So bus lanes as a priority for Minneapolis as opposed to congestion pricing for New York City. Um, And I think laying out the foundation for all of these technology investments and building trust is also so critical and often overlooked because everyone wants to get to the easy part, but it's the hard work in the beginning that will make it count. So thank you so much for your time and for all of these wonderful insights that you've shared. 
You've been listening to Moving Cities, a podcast on smart cities and the future of mobility brought to you by Eden Strategy Institute. Do subscribe to Moving Cities on your chosen podcast listening platform as we dive deeper into the big questions about all things mobility in the city. We'd love to hear what you thought about this week's episode, so don't forget to rate and review Moving Cities. You can also join the conversation on Facebook at facebook.com slash Eden Strategy Institute. Thanks for coming along this journey with us. Till next time.